Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Hey there, guys. In this episode, we are going to start at the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I mean it, because I think it's really important before we get into too much of the details talking about red light therapy that we really understand where light therapy came from and how we've really gotten to where we are today. Because I think it's important. And when we go through this, you know, rather detailed history, you'll understand how fortunate we are to live in the times that we do, given this red light therapy technology that we have at our fingertips. And so, just by going back into the details, building the foundation, as we go forward in future episodes, I think it's just going to build a better groundwork for when we start to go into the intricacies of red light therapy and the research and just kind of, you know, having a better background knowledge to make those conversations more useful. And so let's just get the ball rolling. And in these first couple episodes, this one and the next couple, you know, we'll build the foundation, make sure you really have a grasp on, again, where red light therapy came from, how red light therapy works, kind of digging into the science enough for you to appreciate it, but I don't want to get too bogged down in the science because I know that can be as fun as watching paint dry and grass grow. So let's not do that too much, but just enough again for you guys to have an appreciation really for this wonderful healing technology. And so I think most of us are aware that light, very specific wavelengths of light, have a profound impact on our health. And they're actually as essential, light waves are essential nutrients to our wellness and health just as much as food nutrients are. And that might be kind of a new concept for people to understand and might sound kind of hyperbolic. But again, I think as we go through the information, you'll understand really how impactful light is to our health. So really going back in time, almost all the energy that gives life to this planet comes from the light of the sun. Thus, you know, it is not only natural that light has played such an essential role for humankind and of course all of life since the beginning of time. There are over 10,000 scientific studies done on photobiomodulation alone. We'll get into the uh, definitions of some words here shortly, but 10,000 plus scientific studies on photobiomodulation. And that is the study of the effect that light has on our biology. And of the various spectra of light, red and near-infrared light may be the most interesting and have the most profound impacts on our health. And, you know, cutting to the chase, it's because of the impact it has on our mitochondria. We'll talk about the mitochondria more specifically in another podcast, but for this one, let's keep moving forward. So what exactly is red and near-infrared light? Well, they're just two spectra. They're part of the electromagnetic spectrum, more specifically, the visible part of the spectrum. And these wavelengths, you know, all of which come from full-spectrum sunlight, again, near-infrared light, red light, are literally just spectra from full-spectrum sunlight. And they're, you know, bioactive wavelengths in humans. You know, bioactive meaning these types of light have a direct effect on the function and health of our cells. So electromagnetic waves range from 0.0001 nanometers, and those are gamma rays and x-rays, all the way to centimeters and meters, and those are radar and radio waves. So the electromagnetic spectrum is massive, and only a very small fraction of the spectrum 
is visible to the human eye. And that's from 400 nanometers to 700 nanometers. The highest end of that spectrum is actually where the red and near-infrared light sits. And that's especially important, and it makes sense that those two are especially important to our health because the longer the wavelength, the deeper it can penetrate into our body. So on the other end of the spectrum with the blues and the greens, the shorter wavelengths around the 400 nanometers plus, those don't penetrate the body as deeply. So they're not going to have as profound effects as the red and near-infrared light as far as it relates to boosting health and wellness. So the red light is from about 600 to 700 nanometers. And near-infrared light is about 700 to 1100 nanometers. Interestingly, even within these, you know, particular ranges for red and near-infrared, you know, there are seemingly some wavelengths that are more advantageous than others, according to the research. In the research, the most commonly wavelengths used are, for red light, 630 to 680, and for near-infrared light, 800 to 880. So even out of those two different ranges for red and near-infrared, research has seemingly determined that even a smaller fraction of those, you know, 600 to 700, 700 to 1100, even a smaller fraction of those seem to have a higher impact on our health. And if I had to take a guesstimate, I think as research continues to get churned out and we learn more and more about how light impacts our health in red and near infrared specifically, I think we're going to be able to delineate even down to ranges within five nanometers, 10 nanometers, maybe even down to a couple have specific functions in our cells. So right now we've kind of whittled it down to 630-680 for red and 800-880 to for near-infrared. And again, that's in nanometers. And so when you look at red light therapy devices, they should fall within those ranges because right now that's what the research shows is most efficacious for, you know, all these health and wellness benefits that are being touted. And so there, there are many names when people are talking about light therapy. Uh, Various words have been used to designate, you know, the application of therapeutic light. And if you do your own research, as we talk in these podcasts going forward, uh, there might be various words that may mean the same thing, but slightly different. And so it can lead to some confusion. So right now, I'm just going to quickly define uh, some of the most common words and terminology as it relates to light therapy. So that way you're, you're better equipped to understand you know, when you're doing your own research or listening to these podcasts or other people. So light therapy is a general term that encompasses all forms of therapy that use light. Very encompassing, a very blanket definition. Phototherapy is a therapy that depends on the artificial sources of light. So it depends on artificial sources of light. So being out in sunlight cannot be considered phototherapy because the sunlight is natural. Using LED panels could be considered phototherapy because artificial sources of light. So now we have heliotherapy. Heliotherapy. That is a therapy that employs the light from the sun. So there we go. We have phototherapy for artificial light. We have heliotherapy for a therapy that involves the light from the sun. And then we have chromotherapy, and that's therapy that uses specific influences of different colors from the visible spectrum. And we're not going to go too deep into this because that's that's a pretty deep rabbit hole, albeit quite interesting, learning about all the different impacts of, let's say, yellow light and orange light, green light, blue light. And then, of course, we have red light, near-infrared light. And so 
through the times, and we're going back into ancient, we're going thousands of years ago, they understood different colors had different health benefits. Even without the use of the technology that we have today, they understood color of light had a profound impact on our health, and they would use it to heal various maladies. On to the next term, bright light therapy. And that's a therapy that uses relatively intense light sources to influence one's chronobiology. Relatively intense light. And so bright light therapy is commonly used with seasonal affective disorder, SAD, for those people who live in environments where they don't see the sun often, especially late fall through early spring, which is what I deal with living up here in Montana. A lot of times we don't get sun during, can be anywhere from late October to March, sometimes into April and beyond. So seasonal affective disorder, you know, definitely affects me and having access to a healing light therapy, my choice is red light therapy, does make a difference. It does make a difference in my mood, especially later in the winter as as the months go on without the sunlight. Actinotherapy is a therapy that uses the ultraviolet part of the light spectrum. And again, you're going to see this with seasonal affective disorder because you're missing those UV rays from the sun, and that affects your ability to synthesize vitamin D, which is very important. If you're lacking that nutrient, your immune system's down, your mood is down, and a lot of other things aren't operating as they should. So with that being said, though, UV light and ultraviolet light can be a little more dangerous because if you get excessive exposure, that's where we start to see issues with skin cancer and the likes. Okay, two more and then we'll move on. We have thermotherapy. And that's a therapy that uses the infrared part of the spectrum through its caloric effect. So you are using infrared light to burn calories, heat, heat producing. So these would be involved with the sauna, It lives up to its name, thermo, heat. And then the last one, the one that we're mostly concerned with here is a couple different terms for the same thing. In the research, they're used interchangeably. The first term is low-level laser therapy, LLLT is what it's called in the research. And the more popular term uh, nowadays is photobiomodulation. And that's a therapy that uses red and near-infrared light to boost cellular metabolism. And as we know, or we're going to learn, it does a lot more than that, or at least the downstream effects are extremely profound to the effect that it heals a myriad, a multitude, a cacophony of health ailments, or just improves your health and longevity. And that's what this uh, whole technology is about. So before this podcast, literally about 30 minutes ago, I did a quick Google Scholar search of the term photobiomodulation. And I broke it down into different time frames, kind of just randomly. And I'll I'll spell it out here, but it's very amazing and kind of astounding the parabolic effect that there is on the amount of research articles from, let's say, 1900 to today. And, And you'll hear what I'm trying to say right now. From 1900 to 1950, there was a whopping seven research articles related to photobiomodulation. So (laughs) this technology wasn't too hot 120 or so years ago, or even 70 years ago. Fast forward, okay, so that's 50 years. Now let's do the next 50 years. 1950 to 2000. 
there was 370 research articles related to photobiomodulation. So that's a pretty good jump uh, from the previous 50 years to seven, and then the subsequent 50 years to 370. And so then I was like, well, we only have 20 years to go from there, so I'm going to break down the next two decades. And so then I did 2000 to 2010. And in that decade, there was 2,070 research articles. And then from 2010 to today, so the last decade, there's been 11,500 research articles on photobiomodulation. So again, from 1900 to 1957, and then 370, and then 2070 in a decade, and 11,500 the last decade. Hey there, guys. So I know you're excited to learn about red light therapy, but I'm betting that you're also interested in finding a high-quality red light therapy device. Well, look no further than my company, BioLite. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the thousands of customers that have come before you and have chosen BioLite because of its unprecedented combination of high light power, low EMF emission, and low light flicker. So you're not only getting the most effective treatment option, but the safest as well. And there's many sizes to choose from. There's handheld devices, tabletop models, and even full body panels. So there's definitely a size to match your lifestyle and health and wellness goals. As an added bonus, you can claim a $100 value gift at checkout when you use coupon code REDLIGHTPODCAST. Just go to www.biolight.shop, choose whichever device is going to match your health and wellness needs, and use coupon code REDLIGHTPODCAST to claim your $100 gift. Again, that's www. .biolite.shop. So people are starting to recognize and get excited about the potential that photobiomodulation has. And that's just shown right there in a quick Google Scholar search. And so who knows how many there's going to be by 2030. I don't know. At at this rate, from today to 2030, there could be 30,000 new articles on photobiomodulation. So who knows what we're going to know in a decade, but I'm excited to learn and then properly integrate red light therapy for everyone's health my health, your health, your dog's health. So now let's go into the exciting part of today's podcast, the history lesson. Let's really learn about where light therapy came from and then how that's been turned into a present day red light therapy. So many ancient civilizations worshiped the sun or had in some way given the sun a monumental importance as a giver of life. And this probably went on for tens of thousands of years that the sun was given this, put on this pedestal, if you will. And it is well documented that humans have been aware of the power of light to heal for thousands of years. So in ancient civilizations, it was the giver of life, and eventually it became known that this light could heal. The sun is the source of life, abundance, eternity, wisdom, and of course, light. A lot of gods of the sun are found across time and cultures, whether it's ancient Egypt, Babylonia, India, China, Greece, Rome, or even in the the Celtic and Aztec civilizations. It's quite likely that the majority of these ancient peoples had similar knowledge as that of heliotherapy, meaning the practices of using sunlight for medicinal purposes. So it kind of went in the stepwise progression of worshipping it as as a giver of life, and then having the capacity to heal, and now taking it a step further for medicinal purposes, and then, of course, to present day where we are now. One of the oldest existing testimonials comes from the Egyptian Old Kingdom and dates from approximately 2600 BCE. 
It was attributed to the great sage Imhotep, the legendary architect of the pyramids, and contains medical formulas that indicate a profound understanding of the effects of light. And this importance accorded each moment of the day with regard to the appropriate treatment, suggesting an understanding of chronobiology. 4,600 years ago, they knew how to use light to optimize chronobiology, the science of biological rhythms controlled by the cycle of the sun. That's pretty impressive. No technology understanding different times of the day, optimize your chronobiology using the sun. And the, the Egyptians also used solar rays for the sterilization and drying of the food. Imhoptep even practiced a technique known today as photodynamic therapy through the application of photoactivated tar and resins. And then moving forward to another civilization, the ancient Greeks were also fervent practitioners of heliotherapy using the sun. In 450 BCE, the great historian Herodotus described the use of solariums, which are areas of healing based on the light of the sun, stating that, quote-unquote, being exposed to the sun is highly recommended for those people who need to regain their health. So about 2,500 years ago, these Greeks knew people needed to be exposed to sun for those who wanted to regain their health. Moving on, Hippocrates, considered the father of medicine, insisted on the importance of light and the heat that emanates from, uh, from the sun to fortify the bone structure as well as treat a multitude of illnesses, including rickets, obesity, and diverse metabolic disorders. Although I doubt they have or had as much obesity as we do present day. Hippocrates would even cauterize scabs with the aid of light focused through a crystal and quartz, which was able to transmit photoactive ultraviolet rays to enhance the healing of those scabs. And then the Romans, uh, they perpetuated this awareness made by the Greeks. And in their legal code, the Romans contained a, a right to light clause guaranteeing people's access to sunlight in their homes and other buildings that frequently uh, featured a solarium. How many buildings have you walked in in the past week that have a solarium? Or in the past month, in the past year, that have a solarium? Access to light. The Romans dictated a right to light. I don't even think we would, that would come across our minds today. Uh, one of the great 2nd century physicians, Sorinus, who was a Greek who practiced in Rome, recommended exposing jaundiced newborns to the sun, thereby foreshadowing modern neonatal jaundice treatments that use blue light. India, they possess an ancient and rich tradition of chromotherapy dating back to 1500 BCE, according to the Atharvan Veda, which emphasizes the healing power of the colored rays of the sun. Uh, the very sophisticated traditional uh, curative system known as Ayurveda considers colors to be a key element in its therapeutic arsenal of the same importance as food and medicinal remedies, kind of like I talked about at the very beginning. Light waves and light energy in many cultures, is seen as important as the energy you get from food. And in Ayurvedic medicine, even medicinal remedies. And the sun is to be applied as much to the skin as to the visual system. And then let's fast forward to the 18th century, where reports started to appear in medical literature about the power of sunlight to treat an array of diseases. And Dr. Michael Hamblin, PhD researcher at Harvard, and considered one of the top photobiomodulation researchers in the world, gives this account of history in his 2018 book, 
uh, textbook, Low-Level Light Therapy Photobiomodulation. And so from the words of Dr. Michael Hamblin, I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. In 1735, Phineas described a case in which he cured a cancerous growth on the lip using a sunbath. In 1774, Fowler reported that he successfully treated skin ulcers with sunlight. And in 1776, Lapierre and Leconte found that sunlight concentrated through a lens accelerated wound healing and destroyed tumors. There were also reports that sunlight had beneficial effects on internal maladies. In 1782, Harris used sunlight-exposed mollusk shells to improve a case of rickets, which are fragile bones due to vitamin D deficiency. In 1845, Benet first reported that sunlight could be used to treat tuberculous arthritis, which is a bacterial infection of the joints. In the second half of the 19th century, the therapeutic application of sunlight, heliotherapy, gradually became popular. In 1855, Rickley from Switzerland opened a clinic in Veldes for the provision of heliotherapy. Theobald Adrian Palm discovered the role of sunlight in the prevention of rickets. Many years later, the role of sunlight exposure to sun in mediating the biosynthesis of vitamin D eventually explained these observations. Nils Ryberg Finson suffered from an illness that would later be known as Neiman Picks disease, which is characterized by progressive thickening of the connective tissue of the liver, heart, and spleen. His discovery that sun exposure improved his own symptoms encouraged him to treat his patients with light. He had particular success in 1893 when treating smallpox with red light, and in 1895 when treating lupus vulgaris with what he thought was ultraviolet light from the arc lamp, but was probably, in fact, blue light. Two pioneering Swiss physicians, Oscar at St. Moritz and Auguste Rollier at Laysen, were responsible for extending the use of heliotherapy. Solar therapy, as practiced by these practitioners, included increasing graduated exposures of parts of the body to sunlight, and the beneficial effects were considered to be enhanced by the fresh and cold mountain air in the Alps. Bernhard obtained an impressive initial success treating a large non-healing abdominal wound from a knife attack that had resisted all other accepted healing approaches in which he decided to expose to the sun as the last desperate measure. Thereafter, he treated all non-healing and infected wounds with sunlight. In 1905, Bernhard had established his own small private clinic for sunlight therapy at St. Moritz that could accommodate some 33 patients and had south-facing balconies on two of the upper floors for convenient sun exposure. Rollier became disillusioned with the poor results obtained by surgery for the treatment of skeletal tuberculosis and went into a rural general practice, where he began to treat non-pulmonary tuberculosis with sunshine and fresh air. Over the next 40 years, the technique Rollier devised for exposing the body to sunlight came to be broadly accepted in Europe. His clinic, called Les Frenes, don't laugh at me French people, uh, was the first large purpose-built sun therapy facility to be constructed in the world. So even in that brief 100, 150 years, and that's the end of it, by the way, this isn't Dr. Michael Hamblin anymore, over those 100, 150 years, there was a pretty rapid movement for the appreciation that sunlight and light had on healing the body. Various maladies, ailments, wounds, 
So there was some definite momentum in the 18th and 19th, 19th and 20th century. By the beginning of the 20th century, different methods of light therapy were being routinely used in Europe and the Americas. These methods were offered in the context of a host of medical specialties, including psychiatry, optometry, and chiropractic. Many clinics that used heliotherapy were opened, and Rollier alone was the director of 14 hospitals, totaling more than 1,000 beds. And many psychiatric hospitals were equipped with colored rooms, a red one to treat chronic melancholy, and a blue room to benefit those suffering from mania and alcoholism. Psychologist Brian Breeling in 1996 calls the period from 1860 to 1938 the golden age of light therapy. Uh, while he dubs this period that he succeeded it, you know, from 1938 to 1980 as the area of darkness with widespread acceptance to light therapy. The year of demarcation in 1938 was when the first antibiotic penicillin appeared on the medical scene. And then the subsequent pharmaceutical revolution, with its miracle drugs that healed the, you know, the worst illnesses in, in a few days, completely overshadowed the more natural and holistic uh, therapeutic approaches such as light therapy, which, sure, it took longer to show healing effects, which were also less reliable in producing the desired results. So there's no doubt, you know, around 1938 with penicillin, there's no doubt that there's a development of a pharmaceutical medicine having been beneficial beyond measure to the public eyes. So why would you turn to something that takes longer and less reliable light therapy than these pharmaceuticals, such as penicillin? And sure, a large number of otherwise fatal illnesses would have effectively disappeared from the world, and most people can look forward to a much longer lifespan thanks to medication and, and antibiotics, I should say, as, as such as penicillin. And so... Now with genetic medicine being the newest scientific flame, if you will, really encourages us to look forward to uh, an even more spectacular future. But again, this demarcation of 1938 of penicillin really set back light therapy and other holistic treatments such as light therapy a great deal. Once penicillin came around and other antibiotics and vaccines and medications, that became the new standard. Big Pharma had its footprint, and of course it's not going to let go. And so the, the rise of pharmacological approaches, you know, after 1938, rapidly eclipsed the use of light therapy in medicine. In light therapy, you know, it's based on a holistic approach to healing. And when it's at odds with something as big as big pharma, you're, you're not going to win that battle. In the United States, the tycoons of the new industrial pharmaceutical companies that were cropping up financed the publication of the Flexner Report in 1910. And the aim of the Flexner Report was to discredit all therapeutic approaches its publishers considered, quote-unquote, unscientific, including naturopathy, homeopathy, and by extension, light therapy. So the Flexner Report, and this is in 1910, and these tycoons who were financing these medical companies, pharmaceutical companies, specifically put out this report to improperly debunk these natural holistic professions and treatments. And by, by extension, light therapy was attacked. And so really, from the early to the mid-1900s, the FDA, under the pressure by these pharmaceutical tycoons and the lobbying groups, gradually succeeded in rendering illegal the majority of practices involving light therapy. So they systematically assailed its principal representatives. And people who were big names in the light therapy circle during this time 
were vilified. They were taken to court. Some of them were even put in prison. And so if you're someone who is a little more holistic, or even if you're not holistic, and you were going to consider light therapy, but you see these big names, one of them being Harry Riley Spittler, and all of a sudden they're saying, you can't do this anymore or else, then you're not going to do that. It's not worth putting your career and well-being on the line if they, being the FDA, pressuring you not to do it. There was even a surgeon, Kate Baldwin, in 1927, who stated, quote-unquote, after 37 years of active hospital and private practice in medicine and surgery, I produce quicker and more accurate results using spectrochrome than with any other methods, and there was less strain on the patient. And for those who don't know, spectrochrome was a form of light therapy using color, hence chrome, spectrochrome. And so she was basically attesting of almost four decades working in a hospital. She had never had better results than when she used spectrochrome. Again, quicker, more accurate, and less strain on the patient. Yet, this was exactly during that period of time in the early 1900s where there was massive pressure from the FDA to not be using these holistic techniques because they were getting pressured from the pharmaceutical tycoons. So the whole point of this quick little story is to make you understand and appreciate that light therapy has not always been on the up and up. There was this major setback during this time period in the early 1900s. And for a long time, holistic treatments and light therapy being one of them was really cast aside and vilified. So by the beginning of the 1950s, the majority of outlets for the practice of uh, light therapy had disappeared from hospitals, clinics throughout the world. And those who still dared to practice this technique had to do so more or less, you know, undercover. Because again, there was that pressure from the FDA that they would be reprimanded or licenses revoked. And then skip forward to beyond this period of darkness for light therapy. Around the 1970s, 1980s, there were a lot of things that seemed to be building momentum out of that period of darkness. One of them being Dr. John Nash Ott. And he's written many profound books specifically on the benefits of light and light health. And they're written back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And they're some of the best books you can read on light therapy. I've read them all and they're very profound and I would highly recommend reading them yourselves. So John Nash Ott showed that artificial lights often have a deficient spectra, thus provoking what he called malillumination, which is an environmental condition characterized by the absence of full spectrum light. Put another way, that'd be like putting a a tarp over a tree. You're you're taking away its full spectrum light. It's not going to get the light it needs, the nutrients it needs. It's going to be malnourished. It's going to be malilluminated. And malillumination is being used more common day because of our modern lifestyles. We're always living indoors, whether we're at home, we're in a car or bus or plane, and then we're in our office or our place of work under a roof. So we're constantly out of the full-spectrum sunlight, which is one of our main sources of nutrients. And so we could really argue that a lot of our present-day diseases can be tied to malillumination this term that Dr. John Nash Ott coined decades ago. And then other significant research included work from Dr. Fritz Hollowich, a German ophthalmologist who published a very momentous book in 1979 called The Influence of Ocular Light Perception on Metabolism in Man and Animal, 
thus speaking to the importance that light has by going through our eyes and setting off a cascade of metabolic processes that controls everything in our body. Hormones, growth. And so 1979, Fritz Hollowich produced this book. And then next was Norman Rosenthal in 1984. He studied the relationship between the lack of light and depression, coining the term seasonal affective disorder, SAD as we all know it, SAD, very apropos. And so that was in 1984. Michael Terman in 1988 explored the use of bright light therapy as a treatment for SAD. And so this really opened the door and renewed the interest for research in chronobiology and you know how it works with and optimizes our circadian rhythm. And so going forward, the scientific research on the biophysical influence that light has to some of the most prominent discoveries in recent years, such as in 1995, biologist Tina Carew, who is the head of Laboratory of Laser Biology and Medicine of the Russian Academy of Services, she published her discovery of the main component in the regenerative action of light on our cells, which is the cytochrome C oxidase enzyme. And this is extremely important, this finding by Tina Carew, because the cytochrome C oxidase enzyme is a photoacceptor on our mitochondria. And this is why and how red and near-infrared light is so impactful on our mitochondria because the cytochrome C oxidase accepts red and near-infrared light and thus has an effect on our mitochondria. So in 1995, Tina Carew discovered this. In 2002, Samer Hattar announced in the Journal of Science their discovery of a new type of photosensitive cell in the retina, uh, until then unknown, revealing the missing link that explains the influence of light on our hormonal system. Again, kind of tying back to that 1984 discovery by Norman Rosenthal and even Frank Holowich back in 1979. So there was just this continuation of the effects that light has on our eye and the cascading of events that it has in this instance are hormones and our hormonal system. And then beginning in the 1990s, this is one most people know about, is NASA, as well as Russia, they used grow lights when they were going up in space to grow plants. But lo and behold, they found out that there was this profound effect on the astronauts, both on maintaining their bone density and their muscle density better than before they started using grow lights for plants. So they noticed increased bone density, muscle density, wound healing was better, their immune systems were staying healthier and more optimized. So NASA kept the momentum going in the 1990s. And so overall, red light has been repeatedly shown to have a positive effect on cell function and in animal and human studies. And it improves a wide range of conditions, you know, improving health in numerous ways, such as hair health, brain health, skin health, immune health, sleep health, anxiety, depression, and all of those we are going to cover in future podcasts. And so really, as far as red light therapy or even phototherapy becoming popular in the public's eye, specifically red light therapy in this case, there's been a few barriers to the widespread adoption and even awareness really for red and near infrared light technologies among physicians. 
So there's three barriers. One is that some of the cellular mechanisms of how red light therapy works in human cells are still being elucidated, and some physicians have a difficult time adopting some form of treatment or technology without fully understanding the cellular mechanisms by which it works, you know, which is fair. They want to know exactly how it works so they can understand it and portray it to their patients. Uh, The second barrier, there's a wide variety of light dosing parameters and devices in the thousands and thousands of research studies. So practitioners feel extremely confused as far as how to properly dose for a specific ailment. And so that's really why I developed a treatment protocol ebook for a handful of different conditions. And this is, again, all based on the research. I went through many, many, many articles, synthesized what power, duration to come up with these protocols to give you specific dosages to treat specific conditions. And so again, that's one of the barriers for physicians and then even people utilizing red light therapy is how do I use it? What's the proper dosage for skin health versus sleep health versus hair health uh, versus thyroid health? And those are all slightly different. The third barrier is that for physicians is that insurance reimbursement is higher with many other types of therapy. So many practitioners are going to choose these other therapies or forms of treatment because the payout is higher. And I can attest to that as being in the physical therapy world and working in a clinic where we were told um, every couple weeks which codes to use more frequently or which treatments to utilize more often because our clinic got reimbursed more. And while that treatment may have not been the perfect treatment or the one to get the patient best quickest, we were told to utilize those because, again, you get reimbursed more. So the point here being, if you don't get reimbursed much for light therapy as a physician, why would you use that versus a different treatment where you get reimbursed more? And then as far as the general public, there's been a couple of barriers hindering the widespread adoption of red light therapy. So the first one is, until recently, you really needed an expensive laser to obtain these benefits that are touted by red light therapy. The laser technology has been used in doctor's offices for many years, and the devices cost anywhere from $5,000 to upwards of $30,000. This is precisely why this red light therapy technology hasn't gone mainstream and why most people still haven't heard of it. A lot of people who have heard of it are under the impression that you can only get red light therapy from these incredibly expensive laser devices, and that's just simply not true. The second barrier for widespread adoption by the public is that if these red light and red and near infrared light LED panels are being used, a lot of them are being used in these anti-aging clinics, high-end med spas and such, where people are being charged anywhere from 75 to several hundred dollars for a single session to utilize these lights. So either people are under the impression that these devices cost tens of thousands of dollars, these lasers, or I have to go to a med spa where I could get charged $100 or $200 for a single session in a fancy med spa clinic. But let's break those barriers down right now. Because recent research has shown that it is not necessary or even required to use expensive laser devices to get the many health benefits that are derived from red light therapy. Most experts agree that it's possible to get these same benefits from red and near-infrared light LED panels at a fraction of the cost that it would, of course, for these lasers. 
And again, Dr. Michael Hamblin has gone on record as saying the following regarding red lasers versus red LED lights. Quote, unquote, most of the early work in this field was carried out with various kinds of lasers and was thought that laser light had some special characteristics not possessed by light from other light sources such as sunlight, fluorescent or incandescent lamps, or LEDs. However, all the studies that have been done comparing lasers to equivalent light sources with similar wavelength and power density have found essentially no differences between them. So what Dr. Hamblin is saying is that when comparing lasers to LEDs of equivalent wavelength and light power, if you will, there's essentially no difference between them. So we're going to end the podcast on that quote from Dr. Hamblin because that's a profound statement from who is considered the leading expert of photobiomodulation in the world. He's telling us that you don't need to spend hundreds of dollars per treatment. You don't need to buy a device that costs tens of thousands of dollars, a laser. And lasers are actually not as safe as LEDs. Of course, it's a more concentrated light source, so there's increased safety issues with lasers. So essentially what Dr. Hamblin is telling you is there's essentially no difference in the result and the effectiveness with LED panels compared to red lasers. And it's safer and it's cheaper. You can do it in the comfort of your home. You all know this by now. I'm just uh, regurgitating those thoughts. And so that's impactful to understand that these panels and this seemingly increased interest in red light therapy in the public is justified. It's not a fad. It's here to stay. The research is here. The research is growing, like I spoke to early on in the podcast, going from seven research articles to 300 to 2,000 to 11,000. And so that's very powerful because I think everyone, especially given what's happened the past year with COVID, now more than ever, people are interested in taking health into their own hands and finding a natural, holistic way or various ways, tools, treatment modalities to optimize their health recover, heal, and enhance their wellness and ultimately vitality and longevity. So we're going to continue with the next podcast episode next week, learning specifically about red light therapy, red and near-infrared light, the mechanisms, how does it work, and this is the exciting stuff because this is where the rubber meets the road. You guys now have a better understanding and hopefully a better appreciation with what light has gone through and really how long light has been respected. I mean, it's gone back thousands and thousands of years. Ancient civilizations have known long before us the healing benefits of light. And then also understanding that light therapy, even going back to the Greeks and Romans, they thought light was so important, all humans had a right to light. That's pretty darn amazing. And then coming into the 1800s, 1900s, it hasn't been a smooth road for phototherapy. There's been major setbacks by the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA. So to get to where we are today in 2021, where you have access to this technology is simply amazing and we shouldn't be taking it for granted. And we'll end on that note. And so I hope you found this podcast interesting, informative, educational. And like I said, in the next podcast, we'll dig into the dirty world of how red light therapy really works at at the biological level of physiology and we'll take it from there. So this has been a fun episode for me, kind of going through the history lessons, and we'll keep on keeping on. Post any questions that you guys have, 
either on the Instagram page for BioLite, which is info at BioLite.shop. This podcast and all of its show notes will be posted on www.biolite.shop slash foundation. And so we'll have the links and the information on the website there. But this has been a fun episode. This is your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Have a great one, guys. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolite.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolite. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.